Liverpool 3 0. Call it, take it quickly, Origi! Yeah! Hello and welcome to the Anfield Central podcast. My name is Luke and this week I'm joined by James and Paddy. How are we doing, gents? Not too bad, yourself? Yeah, all good. Paddy, how's things? Yeah, can't complain, no at all. Now, usually we'd obviously kick off talking about the most recent match, but as I'm sure you're all aware, there wasn't a game this weekend. Uh, there was meant to be, but Manchester United fans held a protest outside Old Trafford that spilled onto the pitch, resulting in the game being postponed. Um, at time of recording, the game's not been rearranged. First things first, guys, what are our thoughts about what we saw in Manchester this weekend? I think it's just a, a, a coming together of European Super League and how the Glazers have run the club for 16 years since they've bought them. I think this has sort of just been simmering with United fans for quite a while and now it's just come to a head. And I think, you know, they were very clever in which game they've chose to do it. They've chose Liverpool United, the biggest game that Sky will broadcast this season. It's going to go all over the world. And sadly for Sky, they just had three pundits and Dave Jones just sat there talking nonsense until quarter past seven. So uh, very clever how they did it and can completely understand why they've done it. You know, the Glazers have taken money out of the club, never putting a penny in. And I just think they're getting tired of it now. Um, yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, I think I was fairly annoyed that the match was called off because I was looking forward for something to do on a Sunday, but sure, look, um, these things happen. Um, yeah, I think it goes beyond the Super League, definitely. I think that was just kind of, you know, the straw that brought the camels back. United fans have been unhappy with the Glazers for a very long time now. Obviously, we probably all remember the, the green and gold, I suppose, um, protests. That must be probably 10 years ago now, and that was at the peak of its um, powers, so... Yeah, I think the, the Super League was finally the, the thing that set off the motion to, to really make a change. And I suppose we can't really can't really argue with them. It's it's what the vast majority of the fans wanted. So they had to make a statement and they certainly did that. Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of outline here that while the Super League is obviously something that's happened very, very recently, when we're looking at this kind of ownership model and the way that the Glazers have treated Manchester United... It, go, it does go beyond that. And a lot of people on social media, I think a lot of Liverpool fans on social media, as well as fans of rival clubs have kind of said, well, if United were competing for the Premier League title or if they were, you know, in the glory years of Ferguson, would this happen? And I do think that's a little bit naive, really, because as Paddy says there, we saw that, that green and gold flag protest about 10 years ago, that they created FC United of Manchester, basically a Phoenix club, soon after the Glazers arrived. So I don't think now is really the time to be point scoring. I think obviously you don't want to see fans breaking into stadiums and you don't want to see violence and, and vandalism happening. But I think when you look at what's happened with the Super League and the way that the Glazers have treated Man United and not just Man United, how foreign ownership have treated clubs up and down the country at, at all levels from the Premier League all the way down, down the football pyramid. We think it's just got to a point now where fans are just sick of being treated like customers. Yeah, I think it is. And especially for the likes of United and especially Arsenal now, I think if you look at the, the tickets of uh, to go watch Arsenal at the Emirates, I think uh, they were the highest away tickets at like £60 per person up until they brought the away ticket rule in. Um, I think Arsenal have got the most expensive season tickets. So I think they're just getting tired of it, you know, especially United and Arsenal with arguably the two biggest clubs at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s. It was Wenger versus uh, Alex Ferguson. So 
think those two are really getting tired of it. And we've, we've seen it before, you know, the likes of Wigan, Bolton, Bury, Portsmouth, just to name a few of big clubs, in well, decent-sized clubs in the Premier League, of how it shows that awful ownership can send you the opposite direction. And I think United and Arsenal fans sort of can see or can sense that their club are going to not be dramatic as that, as, as fold or whatever, but slowly fade away from the top four, then go top six, top eight, and look at Arsenal this season. So... I just think they're sick of being known as, I think we all call them tourist clubs, as a bit of a laugh, but I think they're, they're just trying to get away from that now. And, you know, the money that especially those two fans are charged to watch their own team is it's scandalous, really. Yeah, look, it's, I probably am not the best person to be talking about. I don't know about enough about the ins and outs of the business of the game. Like, I'm not, you know, sitting in the boardrooms and, and sitting in on these meetings to know exactly 100% what my opinion should be so it's kind of difficult for us to say but you have to remember what is a football club it's I don't like what did they start off with you know probably 20-30 people from the local area sitting in a room deciding you know we're going to get 11 out together to kick a ball around um, and the whole city is going to support them the whole local area is going to support them and that's kind of that's the roots of the game that's the roots of the clubs so Compared to today, when we have millions of supporters and the far corners of the earth, you know, supporting these teams that started off with, you know, 20, 30 lads in a room, as I said, it's, you know, it's a long way away from it. So, and that's all happened over time. It hasn't happened overnight. So, look, the money in the game is scandalous. Like, let's call a spade a spade. There should be, like, that I, I, okay, admittedly, there, there is so much money in the game because there's so many people interested in it, but like, you know, players being paid 500 grand a week, that's yeah. insane. It's it's crazy, like, when you think about it. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's hard to say, really. I mean, you're not going to be able to just go back to the local support and, you know, like, fan-owned clubs. Like, it's, it's not going to just happen like that. So you kind of have to, as, as much as the they want the owners out like is it going to get better if another owner comes in it's it's a difficult situation i think yeah and i think the super league has woke a lot of people up if they weren't already aware that of how commercial and how money orientated the games got maybe you know your your casual football supporter would would have that perception in any way but making them so much more aware i think the super, that's what the super league's done and like you say it's the straw that broke the, cam- the camel's back in terms of the protest we saw we saw on the weekend. Um, in terms of going forward, the Premier League obviously decided this week that they're going to try and bring in an owner's charter, um, which will prevent teams from doing a, a Super League breakaway in, in the future. And Chelsea have also announced that they're going to have fan representation on in their board meetings. Is that something we'd like to see implemented at Liverpool and and? more widespread and if it is is do you think that's a step in the right direction or it's just kind of tokenism to the fans i think it's a step in the right direction but then again another part of me thinks are they just going to listen are they just putting a fan in that meeting just to say they've got a fan in the meeting are they actually going to listen to their opinion are they going to have a big enough say to try and turn these decisions that the, you know the clubs want to do try and you know sway them the other way um I, I agree with what Paddy said before. I think it's just gone way too far now. I don't think you're going to be able to snatch the power back from these owners, from the CEOs, from the board of directors at these big clubs now. I think 
it's just a, a matter of time before potentially something else happens. And obviously you've just said the Premier League have brought that out. But once you give them the power, I don't think you can take it back without them kicking and screaming. And I think that's what it potentially will come to. But I do like the idea of the Chelsea board having a fan on, but it's just whether they take that fan on at all. That's my only concern. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not going to change. We're just throwing one fan in into a meeting. You know, I think you need a good group of fans to go in there and really make their points heard. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if this charter will work. I'm sure it'll work for a little while, but, you know, the billionaire owners, your FSGs, your Glazers, your Stan Kroenke's, they have enough money to basically do whatever they want. Like, it's if they want something badly enough, if they want to, to you know, find a loophole in this charter or whatever it's called, then they'll be able to do it. Um, in terms of Liverpool, I mean, I'm not sure, like, what it's hard to say what the fans want. Yes, FSG out has kind of been the team of the last few weeks, but then what? Like, who comes in? Do we get, you know, oil money, you know, state-owned companies coming in? Because, like, they're not exactly morally, yeah. you know, the best people in the world either. So, I mean, FSG are, you know, they've made their mistakes. Yes, I know they've made some massive mistakes, possibly irreparable um, mistakes, but at the end of the day, they're still, you know, a left-wing organisation, which is in tune with the people of Liverpool. Like, they're going to make, they've made mistakes, but anyone else who comes in is going to make mistakes as well. So, it's definitely the one thing is more fan representation, yes, but you're not going to be able to get that with any other owner we have either. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really tricky one. I think we, we spoke on this podcast before that now they're kind of, obviously when the Super League was at its peak a few weeks ago and the outpouring of anger from us as Liverpool fans and supporters of the game across the country and the world, really, FSG out was, you know, we were calling for blood and I think a few of us on here, myself, I would say I was particularly guilty of thinking, right, we just need to get these guys out of the club based on all the other things they've done this year with the, you know, furlough and stuff during the pandemic, et cetera. But I think Paddy says it perfectly there that who do you bring in? And I think maybe FSG are the best of a bad bunch, if you want to, if you want to put it that way. This week, the Spirit of Shankly supporters group have had a meeting with, with Billy Hogan, the Liverpool CEO. Supposedly, they, positive talks were had um, that the, the group presented their issues to to bit to Mr Hogan and, and he's gone away to discuss more in depth I believe with you know with FSG and all the key stakeholders at the club what do we want to come out of this kind of meeting it's hard to say do we want FSG to do what Chelsea have done and have Liverpool fans in on kind of key decision making processes do we want them to you know invest more in the squad that or what is it that's tangible that we can say we want Liverpool to do I think it's hard to, to to sort of say what what we want them to do because whatever we say, it's down to them at the end of the day whether they want to listen to us at all. Um, I, I would like the idea of the Chelsea fan, like Chelsea have done, get a couple of fans on the board, maybe have the spirit of Shankly as the group to sit in on, you know, a couple of the heads of that group to sit in on any big meetings. But at the end of the day, this is what it comes down to. It comes down to FSG and whether they want to listen, because I think they know they're in a good position now where they bought the club for a fraction of the price of what it's valued at, and it's highly unlikely that somebody's going to come in, what is it, £3 billion the club's valued mm-hmm. at. Hardly anyone's going to come in with £3 billion and then have to pay wages and then have to 
you know, pay everything that comes after uh, buying a club. So um, I think I think FSG, you know, they're in a really good position at the moment in terms of the the value of the club is so high that they can just turn around and say, listen, we can't sell the club. And in terms of, you mentioned transfers then, can't make FSG spend money. Um, it would be nice to see them spend a bit of money this summer, considering we've had a pretty dry summer for the last two years, just signing Andrian, Jota and Thiago and the, you know, the small fees really. Um, so it would be nice to see them do that. But again, it, it's down to them and what they want to do with the club. Yeah, and that's that's the big thing is, you know, FSG are they sitting over in Boston now saying are they, you know, shaking in their boots saying, Okay, we need to we need to get rid of this club now. I mean, there's a couple of million people who aren't too happy with us. No, I don't think they will. I think they're gonna be confident that it'll blow over in time and they'll continue to make the money that they've been making off the club for the last number of years. Um, yeah, with transfers, look, I mean, you look at I suppose the teams on in, in the world who are kind of you know making their way to the top and the most of them are your German teams you're like who are the smartest recruiters on the planet you have your Bayerns, Dortmunds, RB Leipzig and Liverpool they're the four smartest teams in on the planet I think in terms of recruitment staff both playing and coaching staff and a big part of that is on to FSG I mean look we could have fans when they first came in or a few years ago I should say fans wanted to go out and spend 50 million pounds on Julian Brent. This is the example I'm using. And no, FSG said, no, we're going to sign Mo Salah for 10 million pounds cheaper. I mean, look how that's gone. Same thing for Virgil van Dijk. They wanted to sign him in the summer, didn't get it. Everyone was saying, bring in Koulibaly. No, they held on to the January. They did the smart thing, they bought in van Dijk. I mean, like, that's the, the smart decision. And I think Michael Edwards is probably the key man in all of this. That's the kind of smart decisions in running a club that. I think you don't get with other owners. So at the end of the day, what do Liverpool fans want? They just want a successful club who's going to be ethically and, mor- or et- ethically and morally correct, who's going to you know win loads of trophies. Like if, at the end of the day, that's all anyone wants. Yeah, and I think when you look at you know on the other side of things, FSG obviously point to the Champions League and Premier League title. They brought in Jurgen Klopp. Not saying they're solely responsible for all those things. Obviously, the stature of the club will draw in a Jurgen Klopp as, as it will with, with, with players. Um, but also they created, you know, they, they built the main stand. They're going to start work on the Anfield road end, which is going to increase capacity, which is going to make Anfield more of an elite stadium in terms of, in terms of attendances. They've built a brand new state of the art training center with, with Kirby. They have done a lot of good things off the pitch as well as the, the bad thing. So I think, it's a kind of a matter of be careful what you wish for, because like you said, like we've just, you know, we've said many times who comes in and replaces them. The only guys who's going to have three billion pounds lying around, they're not going to be, you know, your average, average Joe on the street who's going to want the best for Liverpool, are they? So it'll be interesting to see where we, we go from here. Um, in terms of this fixture, this Man United Liverpool fixture, obviously, as I say, at time of recording, it's not been rearranged. There has been a little bit of, talk that maybe Liverpool would get awarded the three points because in theory Man United forfeited the game by not being able to fulfil their fix due to security concerns. Personally, can't see that happening. But what do you, what do we think should happen with, with this game? Where does it fit in the schedule? Does having it further back towards the back end of the, of the schedule make it more of a disadvantage for Liverpool if they're going for a top four battle? What's our kind of thoughts? 
I think this is where it gets difficult now because obviously United play Roma tomorrow uh, tomorrow night, don't they? Um, so we couldn't play them at any point this week. And then next week, they've got Leicester again midweek, which is a game in hand for them. Mm. So then you, you sort of look at the last two or three weeks to think, well, where are we going to fit them in? I guess the only advantage is if the game was towards the back end of the season is United have got a Europa League final to worry about and maybe they might... No, they've already secured top four. Um, so they might rest maybe one or two key players to like Bruno, for example, if the Europa League final is coming. Um, but I think it's going to be very hard for, for anyone to try and get this fixture in um, because I don't see the protest stopping. I, I can see another protest happening again. And then where does it go again after that? I think there's, you know, there's murmurs on Twitter of United fans going for the next home game. They, they want to do the exact same again. And I just think uh, the season could probably get extended <laughs> at that rate if Liverpool got to play United. Um, but no, I, I don't think there should be any three points deducted for United or anything like that. It's just passionate fans. Um, obviously, you get the odd few idiots in there that have to ruin it for everyone else. But I think when they reschedule it, I think it has to be agreed by both teams of when it's done because obviously... Top four is a big concern for Liverpool this season and United will want to secure a trophy at the end of this season. So if they can consult both clubs, I think uh, the right solution will probably come about. No, give us three points. Don't care about it. No, <laughs> we're not going to beat them, are we? So just give us three points and hopefully we'll get top four with that. But no, I, I assume it'll be rearranged. But as you say, I don't know where we're going to fit it in. Um, to be honest, it's strange that we actually haven't heard a thing about it like from any official sources or anything like that because it's for I suppose three days out now and we haven't heard of any word um yeah as James said United play every midweek from now until the end of the season so where do you play when do you when do you play the game like um one thing that I was just thinking myself is maybe if they're playing a weekend fixture on a Friday then yeah or if they're playing a weekend fixture maybe they can move it to a Friday and then we can play them on a Monday I don't know it's 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 going to be tough to fit in um and then i suppose you could play it after the last round of premier league fixtures but then the premier league wants every last round of games kicking off at the same time for you know fairness and whatever um so it's going to be tough like one option is probably play it the same day as champions league final i don't know if that's even feasible who knows it's um it's going to be going to be a bit of a headache for for everyone involved but um i'm sure they'll play it at some stage yeah, I'm with you, Paddy. Just give us the three points. I was pretty, <laughs> pretty nervous before this game, to be honest. And so when it got cancelled, even though it's not ideal, it's kind of like, oh, at least my weekend's not going to be ruined by another yeah. Liverpool result. Um, but let's talk about some football then. Next up for Liverpool is on Saturday, Southampton at Anfield in the late kickoff. Um, by the time this game comes around, it's been quite a gap between fixtures between that Newcastle game. It'd been uh, basically a fortnight. Um, is that an advantage or a disadvantage, James? I don't really know of us this season. I think you know, we've had games that shuts a short space of time and got a result and then we go and have three weeks off and then we don't manage to get a result when we come back. I don't know what this squad needs at the moment. Um, but I think it's for, for the likes of a couple of players who may be carrying a slight knock or feeling a bit tired. I think it obviously will come as a handy break. But like I said, with this squad this season, I have no idea whether a long break is a good or a bad thing anymore. Yeah, basically just stole my answer there, James. I who knows? Like it's I mean, we thought we all thought that the you know, we had the 
was it a winter break we had three weeks off there with the international breaks and then we weren't playing the weekend before the internationals we all thought that was going to save our season and that obviously hasn't worked at all so who knows um yeah i mean i suppose the only thing is matt phillips is a week fitter that's about the only positive we can get from that yeah it's it's a tricky one isn't it i mean it's not like there's any rhythm or momentum to keep keep going, really. If anything, maybe giving the likes of Mane and Firmino banging some in past Adrian on the on the training pitch a bit more confidence. But we'll see on that. Um, obviously, it's a must-win game. It goes without saying. We've said that for weeks and weeks that it's a must-win game. We've not been winning them. But with Chelsea, Leicester and West Ham, obviously, when Chelsea and West Ham particularly getting wins this weekend, Leicester obviously got a draw against Southampton there, but they kind of got a little bit of a buffer in third place. With Chelsea and West Ham extending the gap without us playing, does that make us think that top four's more difficult to achieve? Does it take a bit of pressure off that maybe, you know, I think Klopp's kind of said in his press conferences that the chance is slim that we're going to get it. Does that ease the pressure or does that make the pressure more on our shoulders, so to speak. I think it might work into our hands slightly because all the other teams will be looking at us so far away but may not have looked at the games played, called them, so they might take their eye off the ball. But you're literally just clutching at straws now at this point in the season, I think. You know, like I said, Klopp said about two weeks ago, I think it was, he said that if you finish in the Champions League places, it's because you deserve to play in the Champions League next season. And at the moment, Liverpool don't deserve to be there. So, um yeah, I, like I said, I just don't know with this team at the moment what's an advantage or what is a disadvantage. Um, even being 1-0 up with 30 seconds to play doesn't seem like an advantage anymore for Liverpool. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, look, I mean, is top four really still on? I mean, I can't see Leicester dropping points in all three of the games. Well, they have four games left to play, but you know, three we're all talking about United, Chelsea and Spurs. If they all those, are they going to drop points in all of them? Surely not. I mean, they're still every time I think they're going to slip up, they they come back and they win the next game. Um, they, they just seem like they're they're nearly in the Champions League for next season already. They've one foot in it at least. Chelsea probably going to win all the rest of their games as well. The form they're in at the moment is it's unbelievable, really. And then even if both of those teams do drop points, are we going to win all five of our games? I don't know. So. Yeah, look, it's, of course, it's a must-win game, but even a win mightn't be enough. Team selection-wise, we saw the team that was going to be, you know, was released against Manchester United, and it had Nat Phillips back in it, which is obviously great news. And having Fabinho back in that central defensive midfield role, that's just massive for Liverpool, isn't it, James? I think this season, we knew that he could play centre-back before, but I think the way this season's gone, it's just kind of shown us that going forward for next season and the future, that he absolutely should not be playing there again. Yeah, I know. I think we've we've sort of paved over the cracks of Liverpool's problems this season because of Fabinho has been that good at centre-half. Um, but you, like you say, he just missed so much. He's, he's that final wall. He's the anchor for that midfield. And his distribution as well, knocking it from side to side is... It's paramount to Liverpool going forward sometimes, but you know that's what I think's killed us this season is having neither Fabinho or Henderson in midfield at times this season. It's just absolutely killed us. You know, two players who neutral fans wouldn't give any time of day for really, 
Um, but are so pivotal to, to this Liverpool team. And uh, like you say, once you lose one and you put him into centre-back, the midfield just looks in disarray. Thiago looks around like he doesn't know whether to go forward, whether he's sitting deep, whether he's going box-to-box. And, you know, Wijnaldum and, and the like, like, he hasn't really stepped up this much. And I think Milner playing four games in a row, well, starting four games in a row was a, was a shock enough to everyone, but it just emphasised how thin this squad is and how much you need Fabinho in that midfield. Yeah, look, I mean, Fabinho is the best defensive midfielder in the world, I think, by a bit of a distance, I think, in terms of, definitely in terms of out and out sitting, number six is that one player who sits behind your your more offensive midfielders. I think he is the best in the world at that position, in that position, I should say. Um, you know, he's always in the right place. He has the technical ability to, to match that. We're, we're simply, we're just more solid with um, with him in the midfield because you know it defend it prevents the defenders from actually having to defend because he has the defending done already. So yeah, look, he's 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 a he's a midfielder. He's not a centre back. As good as he is there, um, there's no point in playing your best. You know, Liverpool a few years ago had the best player in the world in a good few positions. Whereas now I think Fabinho is possibly the only one you can say he's without a doubt, in my mind, the best in his position in the world. So why would you not play him in that position? Yeah, and looking at the front three, obviously it was back to the tried and tested Mane, Salah, Bobby Firmino against Man United if, if the game had been played. Is that what we expect this weekend against Southampton? Because Jota seems to have caught the curse of the front three for Liverpool this year, where particularly against Newcastle, he missed a couple of uh, clear-cut chances, didn't he? <laughs> he did, actually. I'm quite surprised on his drop of form recently because... He came back from that international break. He did well for Portugal and he had 19 goals in 19 starts for both yeah, club and country yeah. up until that point. And like he said, I don't know what's going on at, in Kirby, but they just seem to have seem to have caught whatever the rest of them have got. But um, yeah, I expect him to probably go with the try and test it again. Um, I think he's just getting to the point where he, he's just trying to get his, his most loyal players or whoever he's most loyal to to try and dig him out of the hole that what you know the team are in at this moment in time. And listen, I think the time for rotation and you know trying different things that that's well gone with just five games to go. That that could have been done before Christmas or after Christmas. So I think we're going to see Liverpool back to how they used to be two seasons ago, where you you pretty much knew the starting eleven and the front three, and I think that's the way they'll probably go for the, the final five games. Yeah, I personally would love to see a 4-2-3-1 again. Like, I mean, I think the, the performance against Newcastle from an attacking perspective, you know, aside from the last final finish, was probably as good as we've seen all season. I mean, we created a load of chances. Um, I think the problems we had in that game was A, forwards couldn't finish, and B, the midfield was a bit open. Um, you know, if you have Fabinho back in midfield alongside Thiago, I think that kind of solves the the open midfield um, problem. Whereas, you know, playing four three three and going back to Fabinho, Wijnaldum, Milner, that's not going to help Jota, Firmino, Mane. You know, find out how to yeah. put a ball in the net. So I think the best option for us would probably be create as many chances as we possibly can and hope that they'll score a few of them. And last word on team selection. Wijnaldum was left out of the starting eleven on the weekend. Um, first time that Klopp's kind of benched him for a while. A lot of fans probably would say it was a long time coming. Would we agree with that? Yeah, I can't believe someone who hasn't said whether they're staying or whether they're going has got 
so many games this season and the amount of games he's played on international duty as well. I mean, the lad just doesn't get a rest and I'm just not surprised at all. I think everyone, I think there's a feeling now between amongst the fans where it's just a little bit frustrating now. What are you doing? Are you staying? Are you going? And, you know, I don't, I don't want it to get to the feeling where when Emre Chan came on in the Champions League final against Real Madrid and, you know, he wasn't renewing his contract and was signing for Juventus and people start to have bad feelings for him. Why is he playing in the Champions League final? I know it's not going to be the same for Wijnaldum, but you just, you'd hate for that for him considering what he's done at the club. And yeah, I'm a, I wouldn't be surprised if he's, if he's left out of the scene for Southampton as well. Yeah, I definitely think it was a long time coming. And look, don't get me wrong, I, I love Wijnaldum. I think he's probably one of the more underrated players around. He, he, was, he was always going to be the kind of player, you know, if we're winning games, he's, he's great. If we're losing games, he's useless. Um, I think that's just kind of the player he's, he, he's made out to be. But, I mean, geez, the man played every minute of every game and I was just sick of looking at him. I think he was sick of playing. I just think he should have been given a rest months ago, probably a week or two off. Um, so yeah, I, I won't lie. I was I was delighted to see he wasn't starting against United. So hopefully he he won't be starting the next game either. Just just out of you know resting him like he, he needs a break. Like there's no point. He's 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 flat. He's flat out on his feet. There's there's no point in playing him when he physically can't move. So looking at Southampton, obviously it's been a bit of a topsy turvy season for them. They started off really really well. Um, they've been absolutely decimated by injuries, to be honest, and they kind of have had pretty poor 2021. What are we expecting from them? Um, Hassan Hootel's obviously got them well drilled, but I think his squad's looking pretty thin. I'm expecting them to be high energy. I think in all the games, even when they obviously they've been beaten, they've, they've still had that energy. They're still pressed from really high up the pitch and I don't expect that to change. Um, obviously the loss of Danny Ings is massive for them. I think they're so reliant on him. You know, if he doesn't score and, I know Che Adams has chipped in with a few more goals this season, but I don't think he's the man to lead the line for them. As decent of a player he is. And I just think when you come to a point like this in a season when you're fighting for something and the team you're playing have got nothing to lose, I think that's the worst time to play them. I mean, look at them against Leicester. Um, the other night, they went down to 10 men and still went 1-0 up. I know it was through a penalty, but this is the worst time to play a team like that who are safe, can't challenge for Europe and... You know, they, they just sort of go out there and they've got nothing to lose. And like I said, that's that's sometimes the worst time to play a team like, like Southampton. Um, yeah, I think Ralph Passenhutl is nearly a bit of a miracle worker, to be honest with you, because that Southampton squad is fairly bad. I mean, aside from Ings, they have no real, I suppose, player that you'd look at and think, OK, you're a really good player. War Prowse is OK. If it wasn't for set pieces, he wouldn't be spoken about as highly as he is. Having that said, he, he he does other other stuff that he probably doesn't get credit for, like his defensive work rate and things like that. But um, I think aside from Ings, they're really they're they're not at a whole pile. Um, you know, Minamino is out as well. I'm sure we'll talk about him in a in a bit. But um, look, I think it hurts. As I I feel like we've we've had this conversation before. Of course, Liverpool should be winning this match, but who knows anymore? <laughs> what what are like nobody knows what they're going to do. We should have beat them the first time we played them, and you know that ended up in with Ralph crying his happy tears at the end. So that didn't work out either. Um, yeah, look, who knows? Yeah, and on Danny Ings, obviously he had a had a spell at Liverpool that was pretty much marred by injuries. But for all 
you know, for all intents and purposes, he was really well liked in the squad. I think he's still got a really good relationship with Mo Salah, for example. Um, and do we think that if it were not for his injuries, just how good could, do we reckon he could be? I think Danny Ings, I think he was a perfect player for Klopp's system, pressing high from the front, closing players down. I think, you know, that's the, the main point of his game really is his, is his running and running down the flanks and putting his opponents under pressure when they've got the ball near their own box. And I think what we didn't see at Liverpool, which is obviously down to the injuries, was his clinical finishing. I think obviously since going to Southampton, that's something we've seen more on a regular basis. And as I don't think it's any surprise and, you know, to see Man City linked with him in the summer and just for someone to come off the bench, someone with that energy, the pressing. Um, but I just, I really feel sorry for him. I mean, did his ligaments just before Klopp came in, his knee ligaments, comes back, plays Tottenham in the League Cup about a year later and does the opposite knee ligaments. So it's, he just had no luck at Anfield. And I think he even he's, he acknowledges that, you know, it was, it was just blighted by injuries and he was just unlucky, really. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you said there. I think he, he would have been the perfect, you know, Jurgen Klopp striker if he was, if he was on top form for us, if he managed to stay injury-free. Um, you know, he does all the pressing excellently, but he's also able to finish as well. Um, so yeah, I think he would he have been our you know world class number nine. It's hard to say, but he definitely would have been a more than competent striker for us, even if he wasn't going to be first choice. And one man who's obviously still officially a Liverpool player, but is currently at Southampton, is is Taki Minamino. What do we make of, of Taki? Really, it's been a bit of a difficult one for him. Obviously, he came in during the pandemic um, from an Austrian team. And he's not had the best of luck, but at the same time, he's looks like he does have something about him. He looks really good in tight areas. Um, his finishing could do a bit of work, but he's, he's, he's a threat. He's obviously gone alone to Southampton to get more game time. Do we expect him to come back and be in and around the squad next season? And if so, how how much we expect him to contribute? I think he'll come back as a squad player. I don't think Klopp's perhaps ready to give up on him yet. I think with his Southampton career, I mean, he's gone to him at the worst possible time, hasn't he? Because yeah. since he's gone there, the results have gone, the squad's thin. Um, so it's it was difficult for him coming to the Premier League and his second move in the Premier League hasn't really been much better for him, but there have been times this season where, you know, Liverpool have been one nil down. I look at the Fulham game and Burnley and Brighton. And I think bringing a player like Minamino, one who's good in tight areas, you know, could feed the ball through in a tight, in a low block, in tight spaces. So I expect him to come back and, and potentially just be a squad player. Like I said, I don't think, I don't know how much value we'd get for him if we tried to sell him because he just hasn't had that much game time. Um, but yeah, I think it was a strange one after he got his first Premier League goal against Crystal Palace just before Christmas for him not to play a minute at all for Liverpool and then move on transfer deadline day um, was a strange one. But I guess he's just another one of the, we'll just have to sit and wait and see what happens in the summer. I think he's he's in a long list of plays on that at the moment and it's going to be a busy summer, I think, for outgoings. Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing because he had such a good start with that goal against Chelsea, wasn't it? He started really well. Um, you know, I thought Southampton played the exact system. They play an RB in Red Bull Salzburg with the 4-2-2-2, I think. I suppose is probably the best yeah. way to call it. And, you know, I thought he'd slot right in and 
and play pick up where he left off in Austria, but for whatever reason, it hasn't worked out. It's I suppose it's hard to see exactly why. I haven't been watching Southampton every week, but um, yeah, I think he's just short of, of the level needed. You know, if if he's not one of the first names on the team sheet for Southampton, I don't think he's good enough to be. You know, definitely not a starter for Liverpool, obviously, but even coming off the bench, I'm not sure. Maybe he, he needs time to adapt and stuff, but it, I mean, he's he's here over a year now, and as difficult as the circumstances were when he came in, I mean, it, it's it's over a year at the end of the day, and he's he's 26 as well. So, I personally, I I'd sell him if we could get. I think we bought him for is it seven and a half million ish. Um, so if we could get anything over 10 million, I'd I'd be taking it to be honest. Yeah, I agree. I agree with James um, about it being weird that he didn't play a minute after that because that was around the time our form really started to drop off as well. So you, he offers something different. Do you think the physicality of the Premier League has taken him by surprise at all? Yeah, I think it has, and I think obviously the teams we played at around about that time after the Palace game were Newcastle and uh, West Brom, wasn't it? Just before the turn of the year. Yeah, you know, big strong teams who were. You know, all of the back four are six foot two and we'll we'll head anything that comes in the box. So yeah, I think he's probably, you know, not adapted to the physicality of the of the Premier League too well. And listen, it, it was a bit of a shock move when we signed him. I think I know he impressed us against when we played Red Bull Salzburg and he scored the volley at Anfield. And I think we were all surprised that the club actually went and made a move. But I just think he's his low centre of gravity is not quick enough on the turn sometimes, and I think he's just a little bit too easy to knock off the ball. If he can bulk up over the summer, um, he's going to have a, a, you know, a long summer off. I don't know if he's going to go to the Olympics with Japan. I don't know if he's going to go um, for the in the football, but we'll just have to wait and see. But I, I just like the guy. I think he's you know he's nice to have around the squad. So I wouldn't really want him to leave after playing so few games, really. I, I definitely think the biggest thing with him is he gets shoved off the ball very, very easily, probably easier than I've ever seen anyone shoved off the ball, to be honest. Mm. And the worry is at 26, is he really going to bulk up that much? I don't know, maybe, possibly. It's unlikely, I would think. But yeah, I mean, look, if we if we keep him around the squad and, you know, he's not the worst player to throw in if we're, if we're stuck or for the Cups and things like that, definitely not. But do I want to see him, you know, do I want... Liverpool to be a goal down with 10 minutes to go in a Premier League game next season and see Minamino coming on? No, I don't think so. One man that looks like he will definitely be coming to Liverpool at time recording is Canate from RB Leipzig, the French centre-half. Reports today suggesting the deal is very, very close, um, which is obviously triggered speculation regarding if Liverpool have any outgoings at centre-back, um, whether Kabak's move will be made permanent. One thing that has been suggested is maybe a way to incorporate more centre-halves as well as maybe give Liverpool a bit more attacking impetus that they've lacked this year is maybe change the system, maybe going with a five at the back or three centre-backs and playing Alexander-Arnold and Andrew Robertson more as wing-backs. We know what they can offer going forward. So it wouldn't be, you know, mad thing to suggest. Is that something that we could see happening or is Klopp likely just to kind of stick with similar kind of formation, the 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, but add more personnel? I think it's something we could definitely see. I think we could also see Joe Gomez go to right back in certain games. And as we saw during the Champions League run um, to the final, you know, I think Joe Gomez played the away leg at the new Camp. Obviously, it's not the greatest scoreline or the greatest <laughs> example to use for Joe Gomez, but he has played right back. He's played left back. Um, so there is, you know, the option of, 
maybe everyone has this obsession of pushing Trent into midfield. If you wanted to do that, then, you know, you could put Joe Gomez at right back and have Canate there. Um, but I definitely think that, you know, just because you sign Canate doesn't necessarily mean one has to go. Um, and there is a way to get, you know, three, two, definitely two of them, but maybe three of them in the, into the starting eleven. And like you said, if we have um, Robertson and Alexander Arnold, and we, we all know how good they are going forward. And this season, we've seen them hampered by having to sort of double check how far forward they go because of the how, how fragile we are at the back. So it would be nice to see them get back to where they were, you know, last season and, and the previous seasons. Yeah, I mean, look, do I see first game in the Premier League next season, Liverpool rocking up a tree at the back? No, I don't really, to be honest. But could I see it later on in the season? You know, especially if we've had a run of form like this year, I definitely think it's worth trying. Like, I think this year, when we were flogging a dead horse for so long with a 4 3 3 and the guys with, you know, no legs playing every minute of every game, we definitely could have tried something. The issue was, of course, we had no centre halves. But yeah, I think. I don't think Klopp's going to be, you know, spending the whole summer drilling a new system into into these players and you know completely changing his philosophy. But I think it is something they could work on, you know, just to to have an idea of it. You know, if if a game permits that we should be going to three at the back, then definitely, um, definitely have that in in, in the, on the back burner, I suppose. Um, the thing is, Trent as a ring, wing back hasn't really worked for England as as has been so well documented. So I'm not sure. If, for, you know, really work for Liverpool either. And then the other thing is, you know, this season himself and Robertson have been limited going forward because they've had to make sure that, you know, Phillips and Kabak or Reese Williams, whoever is at the back is, is is okay back there. They don't need to do that when Virgil van Dijk's back there. So I think, yeah, definitely have it as plan B, but I wouldn't be making it, you know, my first choice system. Be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, we'll finish as we always do with the big question of the week, where I put a question to the guys from the world of football and see what their thoughts are. Normally, they're not completely Liverpool related, but this week there's a little bit of a link because it's two years since Liverpool's 4 0 win over Barcelona, which was obviously one of the greatest Champions League comebacks of all time. Um, so I'm asking the guys what their opinion of the greatest ever Champions League comeback is, with the caveat that we're concentrating on knockout fixtures, because otherwise it'd just be Istanbul and we're done. Um, obviously, there's <laughs> quite a few to choose from. You, you think of you know, Barcelona involved in quite a lot of the most memorable ones. They, they overcame a, um, a 4-0 deficit, I think it was, to beat P PSG a few years back. They also lost in Rome to Roma during a pretty special comeback. So what, what are your thoughts, guys? If I'm going to have to pick one that isn't Liverpool-related, <laughs> obviously it's either going to be... For Liverpool, it's either the Barcelona comeback or the Dortmund. Um, yeah. Lauren's last-minute header, I think those two stand out the most. I think in terms of picking another one that isn't necessarily Liverpool, just for the fun of it, the Tottenham away at City uh, with the Aguero oh, yeah. <laughs> one that gets disallowed. Um, it was just end-to-end. -end. I remember we were playing Porto on the same night Yes, that's right. we, pr we pretty much wrapped the tie up and I was just kept flicking forward and back and every 10 minutes the scoreline was changing um, and obviously I think when Tottenham they looked dead and buried at one point um, I think it was after Sterling scored um, they just completely looked out at it and they managed to get themselves back in the game through a handball goal from Lorente and then obviously to get a bit of luck at the end but the other one like um, the one I make a bigger case for is that Barcelona PSG. I mean, that one was 
Sergio Roberto to score with literally two minutes left on the clock. They come back. Cavani scores in the opening 10 minutes. Then they've got to score six goals and or five, six goals, whatever it was. And yeah. to do it so late in the first half, uh, in the second half, what they did was was incredible. So I'll go with that one. Yeah, when I saw this question come up in the running order, I said straight away, it's, it's obviously Liverpool and Barcelona. I mean, without a doubt. But then I, I kind of had to remind myself of Barcelona and PSG because I obviously remember the game and everything but just exactly what had happened because that was a madness really like you know PSG to go four and it up against Barca and this was still Barca of you know Messi Suarez and Neymar this isn't the no. current Barcelona I suppose you could say of um, you know third in the Liga or second in the Liga they are now but um, it, it, it was still a world class team and PSG obviously didn't have Neymar didn't have Mbappe it was I suppose Cavani was probably their main man at the time Di Maria um, so so that alone was a shock, but then the, the way the second leg happened, it was like there was so much drama, you know, Suarez scoring, I think it was Suarez scored early and, you know, you're just thinking, okay, maybe. And then the Barca score another one or two, then Cavani scores in the 68 minute or whatever it was. And you just think, oh, okay, that was short lived, but, you know, at least you had a bit of excitement in the first half um, and then it gets to the end. And it's just the, like, even with five minutes to go, they were still two goals away and it just seemed impossible. And then they got that one goal, the penalty for Neymar, who was, you know, unbelievable that day, probably added a hundred million to his transfer fee. And then, you know, Sergio Roberto of all players, you know, La Masia, born and bred, not a great player, but that's beside the point. Um, and then just it, like time was literally up. It was the last kick of the game. Ter Stegen was up in the box. It was, so much drama um, so yeah I, I really think you, you couldn't really write it so I think that has to be the one for me that uh, reluctantly I, I think is even better than Liverpool and Barca yeah and I think that just shows what the Champions League all, is all about isn't it the drama you know if you think about the rule changes that might be coming in a few years time but personally I think the system and the, the format is pretty perfect as it is um, obviously, another good one to mention is that Tottenham in Ajax. Obviously, the 3-0 with Lucas Moira scoring the hat-trick there. Noteworthy. In terms of that Liverpool 4, Barcelona 0-1, then we've obviously seen some great Liverpool comebacks over the years in Europe, particularly. You think of Gerard against Olympiacos in 2004 to get us out of the group, which was obviously in the Istanbul season. The Dejan Lovren and uh, Europa League against Dortmund, as James mentions there. Where do you, Does this really the, the best of the best when you consider the opposition the first leg and the, the circumstances with Salah and, and Firmino injured as well? Yeah, I, I think it's the greatest Champions League comeback of all time. I mean, knockout anyway. Istanbul will always reign as number one for me. Um, I just think you, you lose 3-0 away from home. I think Naby Keita went off within like the first 20 minutes in that game yeah, as well. So right. we already had one injury from the game. Then we go and play Newcastle. Salah goes off injured. Firmino picks up a knock. So those two are out for the return leg. And let's look, you know, Barcelona had the greatest player to ever play the game up front. They still had Suarez. They had Coutinho. You know, they're, they're, they had the starting 11, the main 11 that they'd had all season. Um, so I think, obviously, like you say, we had to take um, Wijnaldum off at halftime. Uh, sorry, we had to take Robertson off at halftime bring Wijnaldum on, put Milner at left-back, and then you've got a front three of Origi, Salah and Shakiri. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think 
I don't care what anyone says. I don't think anyone's beating that. Yeah, I've changed my mind again. <laughs> no, I think, look, in terms of the actual game itself, I think Barca and PSG, the drama of the actual match, that was probably better. But when you take all things into consideration, the Mane, Salah missing, as you say, then there was the psychological blow of companies' goal against Leicester, you know, two nights previous, um, where, you know, I think, wasn't it a Rigi scored against Newcastle where yes, we kind of thought yeah. we're going to win the league and then company went went and scored that goal that he will never ever score again if he tried it a hundred times he'd never score it and just deflation you know thinking we're, we're not going through in the Champions League we're not winning the title this season has all been for nothing so to come back and do that I mean it's it's a fair cry from the the mentality monsters that we have this season or the the opposite of mentality monsters that we have this season um so yeah, I think when you take all things into consideration, that probably was the best Champions League comeback. Well, if nothing else this season, we can relive that when the anniversary is on Friday. Um, James and Paddy, thanks for your time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, lads. And we'll be back next week where we'll be talking about the Southampton result and all the latest Liverpool news. But until then, you can keep up to date with all Anfield Central news on our website, which is Anfield Central co.uk and our twitter page which is at anfield underscore central and our podcasts are released on acast and apple pods so until next time goodbye